Welcome back to Practice Purchased Season 3, Episode 9. We've got one more to go here, two more actually with this one with Ashley Garby-Smith. And Ashley, today we're talking about frequent deal pitfalls to avoid with a special emphasis, obviously, on the legal side with you here on the podcast. Thanks again for joining, Ashley. Well, thanks for having me as always. Okay, let's just get right into it. So we've got a buyer, we've got a seller, and as much as you and I uh, know and how much experience we have and you know, we can see where things will go right and wrong. Um, I don't know. I, I would say there's probably somewhere in the five to 10% range of deals that fall apart at some point for reasons that, um, you know, I, I kind of shake my head at. Um, sometimes I can see them coming. Sometimes they're a surprise. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm excited to get into this because the, uh, the more information people have, the fewer surprises, the better, the more comfortable they're going to feel and the more confident that they're going to feel. And selfishly, as a finance guy, um, biggest mistake I see buyers make is just waiting too long to buy a practice. So I'm excited to, if we can share some of these deal pitfalls and help people feel confident, I think that's going to help folks just get into ownership earlier and, and ultimately help more people. So Ashley, thanks for joining. Um, all right. What would be, what would you say, you know, where would you like to start the conversation? Do you want to, do you have a number one deal pitfall that you want to talk yeah. about? So the way that I look at deals, I kind of look at it as a process, right? And so maybe the best way to go through this is, at, you know, through the process, where are the pitfalls that you find at each Perfect. stage of the process? And so I would say the number one deal pitfall to avoid, which actually really isn't even a legal pitfall, but it, it will cause so many problems down the road is not obtaining evaluation. Yeah. That appraisal, the number, essentially what you're saying is expectations written down in a number form. Correct. Yeah. Yes. There's gotta be a dollar figure somewhere on the table. Right. So and it seems so basic. Like you're saying that people try to buy and sell dental practices without a number. How does that happen? You know, it's interesting. I just think they want to save money. And, you know, but, and you hear this, you know, I know real estate agents say this a lot where they say, you'll make more money by hiring a real estate agent because the real estate agent knows how to value your home. That, that may be true. It may not be true. Sure. But what I can say is true is that if you go, what happens is you'll have a, an associate that's working for a seller for a period of time. Yeah. And so they have a great, this is where it happens most is they have this great relationship. The seller says, I want to sell you my practice. I'm willing to sell it to you for X amount of money. It's a great deal. And you know, it, we, you don't really need to hire an attorney. I've, I've had someone value my practice pretty recently and it was valued at a million dollars. And it, I, this really does happen. And the a new associates thinking, well, I don't really want to pay you know, Brian's fee. I don't really want to pay Ashley's fee. I trust this seller, this doctor. Okay. Let's enter into this deal. Yep. I, I, uh, I have some numbers to back up the fact that this may be the number one deal pitfall. Uh, and it's, it's anecdotal. I can't cite a study, but when I talk with brokers, bankers, lawyers, and, and I even look over some of my own deal data that I have of hundreds of transitions, I want to say it's probably some of the neighborhood of 50 to 60% of sellers in the attempt to save some money, don't engage a transitions expert, i.e. a broker or seller's coach, someone like that in some form or fashion, right? They go off of 
what their buddy 300 miles away sold for, or, you know, yeah, a, a, an equipment rep said that they could probably sell for 75% of collections, 85% of collections, whatever it is. And so they, they create an assumption in their head about a specific number. And, and that becomes the de facto valuation. But what you're talking about is a hard and fast, someone with experience running the numbers, looking at the other factors at play, rural, fee-for-service, Medicaid, you know, I mean, there's right long list. We could talk about things that would, would potentially affect evaluation. You're talking about a formal valuation. Exactly. Yes. And yep. that okay. shocks me that 50 to 60% of sellers would not obtain evaluation for a practice that, you know, one of the biggest sales that they're going to make in their yep. entire life. Yeah. And they justify it by, oh, I'll think about the money I'm going to save uh, by not hiring the broker. Uh, but it's kind of back to your real estate agent comment. Okay. So not, um, not having a number in play, uh, whether that's as a buyer coming in as an associate and the seller saying, Hey, you know, yeah, about a year from now, I'll let you buy in. And that's the end of the conversation, right? Well, right. <laughs> a year comes and goes, how, you know, how are we going to value it? That the associate now has 500 grand a year of production under the bell is the associate paying for that, right? There's all kinds of assumptions that just haven't been uh, talked about or written down, or, you know, somebody hasn't ex- had an experience side to value things. Okay. Got it. So yeah. have an evaluation. Perfect. What about on the legal side? What's the biggest, <laughs> so, I mean, that, that kind of is the legal side Im- implicitly, but specifically right. on the legal side. Right. Because on the, you know, I'm, that's the first question I'm going to ask any client that comes to me is what is the practice worth? You know, I, I start with the numbers so I can have a good idea of what kind of deal that we're going with. And so, which brings me to the next pitfall is not even hiring a lawyer. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, <laughs> but there, I mean, you know, there are so many people who will go through this process without having a lawyer and DIYing your legal is one of the biggest mistakes you can make. No, I'm mean, not for me, actually, because uh, my friend, uh, he just bought a practice three months ago uh, and he just sent like he has the word document versions of the contracts. So I'm good. Like I've got the documents. I'm going to replace some things. You know, I'll read through it and just make sure it makes sense. But I mean, I, I can save five, six, seven thousand dollars by not hiring you because I've already got the documents. I'm good to go. <laughs> well, and it's, yeah, you, you know, you'll be fine. It'll seem like the deal goes through well and, and everything went so well and you saved so much money. And then you're now practicing in this business that you've purchased. And, and I'll actually, I'll just bring this up. I was going to bring this up anyway, but you, you have some dispute about the AR <laughs> and, and, you know, you're down the road and you have some dispute about the AR and, and how much you're going to get for for doing the work on the AR and your AR wasn't even discussed in your purchase agreement. You, you didn't even come up with some way to deal with the AR with the seller. And now the buyer and the seller are in this big dispute and there's no way to determine what's, you know, how to, how to resolve this issue with the AR. This, that's just one of so many things that can go wrong down the road where if you don't have a, you don't know what you don't know. And as a dentist, you know a lot. You, hey, dentists out there, you guys are smart. You guys and gals, you are smart people. We that's why we like working with you. But you didn't go to law school unless you did. Unless you're a dentist who went to law school, who I know a couple people who did both. But you don't know what to look for, Uh, and especially if this is your first purchase that you're going to make. This is one of the biggest 
purchases you're going to make in your entire life, get a lawyer. Yep. Yeah. I won't work with a client who is not going to engage an attorney. And I tell a, a client, if it's between me and an attorney, go pay the attorney first. So that's how important I think it is. What about um, hiring, like choosing the right lawyer or, or yes. in the case, the wrong lawyer? But where, what are the pitfalls here and, and how do we avoid them? Yeah. So this is really important and this is a huge pitfall that I see. So um, we've talked, you know, in these past episodes about the bulldog or pit bull lawyer. Yep. And, you know, a lot of people think that that's what they want. But let me tell you what you are getting if you search for and hire a bulldog or pit bull lawyer. These are lawyers who kill deals. Mm-hmm. And and I see I see it happen all the time. They co- they will cost you a lot of money because most of the time these these types of lawyers are not flat fee based because they know they can stretch out the deal, they can fight and maybe they will get you what you want, but in mo- in more cases I actually see these lawyers kill deals because they are they are so aggressive. They are unwilling to bend and unwilling to compromise. And I will say that there are some lawyers in the dental industry that have this reputation. Yep. And if I find out that these lawyers on the, are on the other side of the deal, sometimes I won't even take the case because frankly, it's not worth my time or, or the hassle of making my life miserable dealing with these pit bull or bulldog lawyers. Yeah. Yep. I do the same thing. There are a few names that um, just by doing a few hundred of these, right? I've come across a few th- names over and over. And by now I, know, I just know that there is a higher than average likelihood that things are not going to go well. The deal will be dead. The client will be frustrated. And some of that frustration will rub off on me. And um, so, okay. I have some ideas. Ash, I'm curious as a lawyer, how would a dentist identify the wrong lawyer, the pit bull lawyer telling me that I should avoid? Well, I think the first step you can take is getting a referral from somebody like you okay. or, or some, you know, other a peers person. That's not a lawyer. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Talk to, talk to brokers, talk to other dentists who have bought or sold practices, talk to someone like you accountants Bankers. that work with them. Yep. Because again, this is a somewhat small community. I mean, mm-hmm. And, and names, you know, names get circulated and people have a good idea of who is easy to work with and who is very difficult. And, and I will say because of the relationships that I've built with some other lawyers who have been on other sides, it makes the deal go so much more smoothly and we can still get what we want because I know that I have a good enough relationship with the lawyer on the other side that I can, I can let him or her understand where my client is coming from. And because we have a collaborative relationship and we have built a rapport with each other, we we're more willing to work together. And so, you know, it just, it's so important to, to get referrals from people who are maybe not lawyers, but you know what, you could also get referrals from people who are lawyers. So maybe you call a lawyer and you say, Hey, I want you to represent me. And that lawyer says, well, I, I'm either conflicted out. Um, or I can't take on the work right now, ask that lawyer for a referral because you're, you're going to get a good referral from them as well because they've worked with that person before. So I think that's the first thing. Now, when you're talking to a lawyer, I think, you know, it's really, it's really good to see how responsive 
um, a referral is. And so, you know, if you get a referral and that lawyer is pretty quick to respond and, and it's easy to make an appointment with them to have some type of consultation, that's a good sign because it shows how responsive they're going to be. And as you're talking to the lawyer, there are some questions that you can ask that will give you a, you know, a good idea. And, and one of those questions is how many deals, you know, how many of your clients deals have fallen through and ask them why. Yeah. And now there is, there are some issues with, you know, attorney client privilege, but your attorney can, or your attorney that you're looking to hire can give you some information that will give you a good idea. If that attorney has had a lot of deals for buyers fall through, that's, that's a telling. It can be telling. Yep. Sometimes deals fall through for, you know, reasons that, that are beyond a lawyer's control. But I think that's a good question to ask. Nobody has a hundred percent batting average, but, um, so two, two thoughts actually validate these for me. One I pay attention to is the fee. If a lawyer has, um, a much higher than going rate fee, uh, my sense is they have to, f- they feel like they have to find value and demonstrate value somehow in the deal. And they tend to be more pit bull oriented. That's not necessarily a hard and fast rule, but it is, I've seen some correlation there. And the other one that I've seen a correlation with is the uh, the attorneys that are hyperactive in forums, social media, online, etc. I, I mean, you and I are recording a podcast. It's taken us three months to do two epi- or ten episodes, but I'm not talking about normal kind of blo- writing a blog post. I'm talking hyperactive. I, I just seen a correlation between those folks and the folks that I don't like to deal with. I think those are very astute observations, and I'd have to agree with you 100. percent Cool. All right. Where, okay. So we're following the deal flow. We're talking about, let's talk about the LOI now. Okay. Pitfalls in the LOI. All right. So the LOI, it's really important to understand the LOI is not a legally binding document. And so you have to find a balance with the LOI. So you don't want to be too thorough in the, you know, you don't want to include every provision that you're going to have in a purchase agreement in the LOI, but you also, um, don't want to be not thorough enough. You know, you don't want to skip any really important um, talking points that if you get into the, the process of the purchase agreement, that the seller says, why didn't we talk about this in the LOI? And so I think a remedy for that is to make sure that that you have someone like either you who has a lot of experience in the dental in the dental transition industry draft the LOI because you know what needs to be included or have a dental transition lawyer draft the LOI. So don't, don't try and do the LOI on your own. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's, there is a balance that you need to have in the LOI. Otherwise down the road, it could cause issues. Yep. So uh, knowing how much or too little is in an LOI, I don't think a dentist needs to necessarily master that subject. Just have somebody else that can help you through it. I mean, we've got a, a podcast episode here in this series. I wrote a book. There's blog posts. I mean, there's there are places you can go to see what's typical in an LOI. Yes, exactly. But yeah, I, I agree. I see that uh, if more frequently from the buyer side, they're thinking down the road, they're trying to essentially slip everything from the asset purchase agreement into the LOI. And I have to tell them, uh, you know, great, great topic of conversation, let's just agree on the price and some basic terms before we start talking about that. Exactly. Yes, because yeah. it can really actually scare the other party away. It can scare a sell- seller away 
And, you know, if, if this is a good practice and a good deal, you want it to go through. So you don't want to scare them off at the beginning. Okay. Um, what about communication throughout the deal? Do you see any pitfalls there? Oh, yes, I do. And this is, this is a big, this is a big one. And this is really important. So, and I'll, I'll tell a story. Um, I had a client and who, who was very proactive throughout the deal and wanted to be very involved in the deal, which is okay. I, you know, I have clients who are completely hands-off. They don't want anything to do with the negotiations. They, they just say, you do your job. I'm completely hands-off. On the other side of the spectrum, I have had clients who want to be involved um, in every single aspect of mm. what I'm doing. And what has happened, and this has happened twice, that the buyer became so involved in the process that the buyer tried to communicate with the seller's attorney. Mm. So my client emailed the seller's attorney about concerns that my client had. And, you know, there's it, sometimes this, sometimes an attorney will just kind of just say, whatever, that's, that's fine. But I would say in most cases, because here's the thing, it, let, let me make something very clear. If a seller is represented by an attorney, I cannot communicate with that seller. And so when my client, the buyer, emailed the seller's attorney, the seller's attorney can't do anything about it because he or she can't communicate with my client. It's against the rules some, of ethics. Okay, so the ethics rules at play here. Got yes, there, yeah, the yeah. rules of professional conduct. I, I cannot communicate with the seller if my client is the buyer without that lawyer's, the seller's lawyer's permission. Yeah, that's interesting. I always knew that was kind of the, the culture. I didn't realize there was a rule there. It's so an actual rule. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a violation of the rule if, if I do that. And so it puts, it puts the seller's lawyer, it put the seller's lawyer in a horribly awkward position. And, and then frankly, the seller said, I don't want to deal with this person anymore. Because yeah. like, if this is how aggressive they're going to be. And so here's the thing. Never never ever communicate with the seller's lawyer if you have your own representation. The, the bigger issue I hear you speaking to, and I love that specific example, is just not trusting your team. Essentially, this buyer didn't trust someone on their team to do what they're supposed to do. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I, I think that's, that's a great way of putting it. And, and that's, you know, the outcome was both, both of the times that that happened both deals fell through. We had talked in uh, pre-recording about maybe talking about partnerships. I'm going to skip partnerships because we're going to do a whole separate series of podcasts on partnerships. But let me talk and just ask you some questions about I just expectations in general. Um, I see a deal killer sometimes being just sellers struggling to let go. What, do you have any advice around that? Yeah, it's this is a huge pitfall and and it really comes down to the buyer not understanding what the seller's expectations are and vice versa. And so sometimes you might be dealing with a seller who's really not ready to sell. And, you know, so some sellers think that they want to retire and they'll go through the motions and, and then they'll realize they can't afford it. They're going to be poor if they retire. Mm -hmm. And so the deal falls through. So, you know, or the, what would be some signs to watch for then if I'm a buyer? So affordability, that sounds like one. But I'm imagining I would hear sellers 
um, really wanting like, you know, to stick around and work for X number of days and they, they're really sticking to their guns on price and they, you know, whatever, uh, any other, how else can I tell if a seller is really willing, ready to sell or not? Yeah, I think it's, it depends on how, you know, if the seller wants to be very involved in the process and then they want to enter into an associate agreement after for a very long period of time, they want to have a high per diem, you know, they want to get paid a high per diem plus some type of percentage on production. Um, like obviously, they're probably not ready to really retire. And that might be okay for a short period of time. And so it's really important for the buyer to ask a lot of questions about what the seller's expectations are after the sell. And, you know, is are you going to move? Are you going to live in your second home? Are you going to travel? You know, how, or if they want to stay and work there for a period of 10 years, they're probably not ready to sell their practice. Agreed. Yeah. One, I've seen sellers try to put in guarantees for favorite employees, right? Okay. I know you're going to hire everybody, but I want you to guarantee that this person over here has a five-year contract, 10-year contract with you, or uh, they, they want to manage uh, what type of insurance you're going to be in network with after the transition. Or it, Essentially, what they're trying to do is just guarantee that you act a certain way as a buyer of their business. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that's exactly right. And so, they're, you know, if they are asking for a lot of different provisions to be put into the agreement that pertain to the management and operation of the practice, that's a huge red flag. Okay. To wrap this up, Ashley, let's talk about what a buyer can do, right? We've given a lot of, okay, here are some pitfalls that can come up. If you are a buyer and you're listening, you're going through transition yourself or you go through one, you think back to this episode and you see none of these issues, congratulations. Um, what I would say in my advice is, is if you start to hear some of these issues pop up, I think this can get your spidey sense going a little bit and give you a sense that, you know, you're on dangerous ground. I think my advice actually would be to watch for multiple red flags rather than one. I don't know that I'd panic necessarily about, you know, some of these being, you know, potential deal killers, because these things come up relatively frequently where I'm worried is if it's an extreme case or if there are multiples of these popping up in a deal that I've got a buyer involved with. Any thoughts around that? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. And so I think multiple red flags is good. Uh, you know, multiple red flags with the seller can, can sometimes create pitfalls down the road. And so I think really having open communication with your team. So being able to, you know, communicate with your accountant and communicate with your lawyer, if your seller, communicate with your broker, but, but being able to have that open communication, get their opinion. These are people who have dealt with a lot of these deals. And it's important to have, have a team that you can communicate with that is yep. accessible and that is responsive. Yeah. Essentially I, the way that I would phrase what you just said, probably more eloquently is, all right, if you see some of these issues pop up, ask your lawyer, ask your accountant, ask your team, your banker, whoever, should I be worried? Do I need to get out of this deal? Exactly. Yes. And it. it is, you know, we have a, I have a fiduciary duty to my client to yep. make sure that I am serving my client's best interest. I will be honest and I will tell you if it's, if, if it's going down a path that I think could be damaging for you. Perfect. 
Ashley, thank you for the tips here. We're going to wrap up our next episode, episode 10, and I'm excited to have you back. Thanks so much.